Water is one of the most important resources for life. Some organisms uh, have 90% of their body weight coming from water. Research shows that the human brain and the heart are composed of 73% water, and their lungs, our lungs are about 83% water. And for many, many people on this planet, water is a matter of life and death. Today, 844 million people lack basic drinking water access. That's one in 10 people on the planet. According to World Vision, every day women and girls spend 200 million hours walking to collect water for their families. That's 8.3 million days, more than 22,800 years. Now, I know it's hard to get your head around those numbers, uh, the ones that are so large. So let's start with the number 6K. The K stands for kilometers. It's about 3.7 miles uh, of the average distance that women and, ch and children uh, take round trip in the developing world to get clean water. And water, actually it's not clean, it's water that's often contaminated with life-threatening diseases. But how far is 6K really? Well, to, to help you get uh, a better picture, 6K is about 15 laps around a football field. If you've been to Washington, D.C., it's twice the length of the National Mall in D.C. from the Lincoln Memorial to the steps of the Capitol and back again. It's five times the number of steps to climb the Empire State Building. Now, we could probably walk 6K in about an hour and 15 minutes, and on a flat, smooth sidewalk, we could probably shave off about... Uh, 15 minutes, and if you're running, you could do it even faster, but that's not how it's done in the developing world. Moms and daughters take their, their 6K in barefoot or rubber sandals to collect water from polluted rivers and ponds. More than 3 million children and nearly 14 million women walk more than 30 minutes to collect water, and sometimes they make that trip multiple times a day. And it's common for them to climb over steep hills, rocky walls, uh, steep gullies, uh, go around thorn bushes. It's not a pleasant trip. And sometimes there are people who are waiting for them who are not safe people. And on the way home, it's even harder. We all know what it's like to carry a gallon of water from the, uh, from the van to the kitchen. And if you carry a gallon in each hand, it's about 8.6 pounds each. But that total is less than half the 44 pounds that an African woman carries on her head in her 20-liter water can. See, carrying water is not just difficult. It can literally be a pain in the neck, a lifelong back pain that causes serious health problems. But my question to you is this. What would you do for water? How far would you walk? You see, for me, for some time, there's been growing in me a a sense of, of desperation. I see that in everyday life situations that I can't do what I'm called to do. I don't have the strength to do what I'm called to do. I realize that I need the Lord more and His grace more than ever. From overwhelming schedules to the pressures of everyday life to seeing family and friends suffer, over time, if we're not careful, it can drain spiritual passion and power. And I know I'm not alone in facing these kind of pressures. Many of you here today know exactly 
what I'm talking about. Today, I want to answer the question is, what do you do when you're in a place of wilderness? When you're in a place of spiritual drought, when you're desperate for the most important thing to keep you alive, what do you do? Our answer is found in Psalm 63, and my main text today is Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. And as always, before we dive in, let's set the stage with some context. As you turn into your Bibles, you may have in your Bible the superscript that says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, this episode takes place in a, a dark time in David's life. He's, he's in the wilderness and he's on the run. Most commentators believe that this is during the period of exile when his son Absalom had usurped his authority to claim the throne for himself. The details are found in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And I encourage you to read that chapter this week for some devotional reading because it's going to give you some important context to Psalm 63. In 2 Samuel, we see the story of David's life in the shape of an ark or a pyramid, if you will, with the tipping point being his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. And from there, you see the tragic consequences of his choices unfolding in destruction around him. David's son Absalom had returned to Jerusalem after some time and had been nursing some unforgiveness and bitterness towards his father that culminated in a coup where he seized the throne. In 2 Samuel 15, David is fleeing for his life in the wilderness, and here is verse 30 that sets the scene. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went." Barefoot and head covered are signs of mourning. David had many reasons to weep. He and his household now faced life-threatening dangers. The nation of Israel was on the verge of disarray. And on top of that, the shame and this, and of dishonoring the Lord's name. And finally, the deep personal pain of the betrayal and the prospect of a life or death confrontation with his own son. David was in a desperate place, and in Psalm 63, he pours out his heart to God. Now, we know, if you've been around New Life a long time, you know a lot of the Word. We know that there are a lot of different genres, a lot of different writing styles in the Bible, but roughly 33% of the Bible is poetry. So, it's important to know how poetry communicates. Uh, Lawrence Perrine says, poetry is a kind of human language that says more, and it says it more intensely than does ordinary language. In other words, it has an overabundance of meaning, an oversurplus of meaning in every word. And if you've read much poetry or if you've tried to write poetry, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that every word is chosen with great care. Psalm 63 is a psalm of lament. Lament has fallen out of favor in the modern church. You don't hear much about it anymore. And that's unfortunate. Because one of the things we've lost is a biblical way to bring our struggles to the Lord and to the church in a constructive way without feeling guilty. See, we know we're not supposed to be ruled and submit to our emotions and our circumstances, but sometimes we just don't know what to do with them. Laments give us a biblical model on how to do that. And nearly all laments move from the negative to the positive, from sorrow to joy, from fear to trust, the laments represent an authentic journey 
of the soul. We believe in authenticity here at New Life. And laments are not just limited to the Old Testament. One of the best examples of laments is Jesus on the night before His crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14 records it. It says, And going a little farther, He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. And He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. When understood and applied properly, laments are a faith-filled praise and worship response to the trials of life. And we know that the trials of life are coming for all of us. Some of us in this room are in the very fight for our lives right now. So today, I want to talk about how to be authentic with where we are and the struggles we face, but more importantly, I want to talk about how to move from fear to faith, how to move from chaos to confidence, how to move from sadness to joy. And as we look at the Scriptures this morning, my hope is twofold. First is that you would get a clear and fresh revelation of the goodness of God and His character. And second, for those of us who are in the wilderness, who may be experiencing a spiritual drought, that today, together, we could find the refreshment we desperately need by praising the Lord. I take nothing for granted this morning, so let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we are Your people when we are desperate for hearing Your voice and from a touch from You. Father, I pray right now that You would speak through Your Scriptures to strengthen Your people In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Earnestly has a connotation here in this text uh, of at dawn or in the morning. And and actually, uh, Psalm 63 was an important part of the early devotionals of the early, early, the, the daily devotionals of the early church, I'm sorry. And in fact, the ancient church had a practice of beginning the Psalms at each Sunday service calling this the morning hymn. You can also look at earnestly to equal authenticity. And and the first thing we need to do is we need to be honest. See, if there's any place in our lives that we should feel safe to admit that we don't have it all together, that our lives are really not as glamorous as we put out on Instagram, it should be at church. There was an interesting exhortation a couple weeks ago from uh, Michelle during our worship service, and she said, this, this very interesting point. She said, 
the world is watching how we handle trials and suffering. They're watching. See, we have the opportunity to show them who Christ is and what it looks like to live as citizens of God's kingdom. It's so important to live an authentic life. And that's what uh, David does here. This is how he begins in verse 1. David cries out, oh God, it's a, it's a plea, it's a heart cry. Oh God, I need you. I'm desperate. I have nothing left. David was in a place of wilderness, and, and this metaphor is working on two levels that connect his environment to his state of being. And see, there's, there's a parallel to the dry and weary land and the condition of his soul and his body. His inner and his outer existence thirsted and longed and hungered for God. His whole being is desperate for a touch from God. Pastor Tim talked last week about how there are more ways to be paralyzed than just physically. And the same is true about feeling parched and dry. It may not be a physical location of wilderness, but there are times in our lives where we face an impossible situation physically, emotionally, or relationally, and it can make you feel distant from God. And like David, you feel like you're in a dry and weary land. You feel like you're going to die if you don't get a drink. See, we've been created to crave. That's how God made us, to crave for food, for water, for relationship, for physical touch. C.S. Lewis says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. In 1977, NASA launched Voyager 1 and 2 to explore the Milky Way galaxy. And part of that project was the Voyager Interstellar Message Project, which was to communicate a message from Earth to anyone out there who might be listening. A golden record called The Sounds of Earth was affixed to each of the spacecraft, and it contained uh, both human music, the sound of a human heartbeat. And over 30 years later, Annie Druin, she served as a creative director for the project, um, she, she reflected back on when they, what they were trying to, how they were trying to decide what they were going to include on the sounds on the earth. And this is what she says. She says, the first thing I found myself thinking of was a piece by Beethoven from Opus 130 called the Cavatina Movement. And when I first heard this piece of music, I thought, Beethoven, how can I ever repay you? What can I ever do for you that would be equal to what you've just given me? And soon my colleague said, well, you know, this message is going to last a thousand million years. I thought this great, beautiful, sad piece of music on which Beethoven had written in the margin the word sensucht, which is German for longing. Part of what we wanted to capture in the Voyager message was this great longing we feel. Psalm 42 verse 1, as the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul pants for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? The psalmist here uses an image of a deer panting on the verge of passing out if he can't be in God's presence. And just like David, our souls thirst for the living God. We're desperate. And there's hope for that kind of desperation, for crying out to God. And this is what Jesus said about it in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. That's good. The problem for many of us, though, is we're seeking to be filled with the wrong things. And I'm sure lots of things come to your mind right now. In fact, according to one study by uh, University of Michigan researchers, shopping to relieve stress, which is called retail therapy, check this out, was up to 40 times more effective at giving people a sense of control and that shoppers were three times less sad compared to those who only browsed for items. That sounds crazy, but really, is it that crazy? I mean, it's not surprising if you leave God out of the equation. Jeremiah 2 says, this is God speaking through the prophet. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We need to stop looking in all the wrong places. There's nothing on this earth that can truly satisfy the craving of your soul, not money, not fame, not power, not sex, not drugs, nothing. Only Jesus can truly satisfy our souls. Augustine says in the Confessions, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. We need an encounter with the living God. Psalm 63, verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. David had experienced the presence of God in remarkable ways. He'd seen God's strength. He'd seen the glory, the brightness, the shining light of God's goodness. And David here uses the word kavod, which is translated glory here. It literally means heavy or, or, or weighty, a sense of significance. The, the word is used 189 times in the Old Testament. And there are times when the weight of God's presence is so heavy and thick, it almost takes your breath away. It felt like that this morning during worship. And in these kind of mountaintop experiences, God is giving us a foretaste of what's to come. It's a preview of coming attractions in the new heaven and the new earth when we will be with God continually, forever. Signs and wonders and miracles are meant to get our attention. They're meant to open our eyes to the fullness of God's kingdom and showing us that there's another reality. The acts of God and His power capture us but it's the ways of God and His character that sustain us. Psalm 62, verse 3, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Now, the word in Hebrew is hesed for the word love here, and that's love that's based in covenant relationship. It's often called steadfast love in the Bible. And one of the best definitions that I've seen for uh, this steadfast love is from the Jesus Storybook Bible. We've used this Bible for years. Becky discovered it in Kids Park. We use it in our family. And this is what Sally Lloyd-Jones says about God's love. God loves you with a never-ending, never-giving-up, unstopping, always and forever love. That's good. 
that's good. And this is covenant, faithful love that David says is better. It's better than life itself. And David was God's chosen king. And throughout his life, since he was a very young man, he had experienced the goodness of God in miraculous, intangible ways, glorious victories in battle, the riches of royalty. And the greatest promise of all, the blessing of of the covenant promise that the eternal king, the Messiah, would come from his family. But all of that, all of the blessings of God paled in comparison to experiencing God's love, to know Him in intimate relationship. David would rather have God's love than life itself. And this is a great example of what we often say in the church of having an eternal perspective. And one of the the great things that will help us is reframing what we mean when we say eternal life. Of course, it means life that will never end, but there's so much more to embrace. Jesus speaking in John 17 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's about knowing Him now. And when we talk to people that we don't know, uh, whom we know and and they don't know the Lord, and when we ask them the question, do you know where you're going to go when you die? We're only giving them a small part of the picture. They need to know, and I've said this before, it's not just a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. And that knowing God means forgiveness from sin. It means freedom, healing, true joy, and the list goes on and on. And these are things that every follower of Jesus gets to experience in this life. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Apostle Paul later in Philippians says, uh, in Philippians 3, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you know Him that way? Can you count all of your gains, all of your successes, all of your victories, can you count those as loss? Is knowing Jesus the surpassing worth of your life? David Wilkerson, in his excellent book on this subject called Hungry for More of Jesus, says, We do not understand the majesty and honor accorded us by having been raised by Christ to sit with Him in heavenly places. We've become too busy to sit at His table. We mistakenly derive our joy from service instead of communion. We do more and more for a Lord whom we know less and less. Many of us, if we're honest, there's a tug of war going on in our hearts. We're a blessed people, but we're often a restless people. Many of us have way more than we will ever need. Is it possible that we're crowding out and neglecting the most important thing in our life? A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God says, Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. 
Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to His people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, He waits so long, so very long, in vain. Jeremiah, God speaking again through him in chapter 29 says, in chapter 2, you will seek me when you find me. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. David's confession of the supremacy of knowing God's love above all things is very encouraging. And one of the things that strikes me about this passage is how relationship forms our response. It's our intimacy with the Lord. It's a deep knowing that prepares us for the trials of life and the crisis experiences that are coming. Look at verse 4. He says, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. And one of the hallmarks of David's life is he was a worshiper. And here in this psalm, we begin to see David transition. The psalm begins to rise and build from the firm foundation of his faith in God. And notice what it says here, singing. Praising, raising hands, it's a, it's a whole person response to the goodness of God. Just like earlier in the psalm, thirsting and hungering for God is a whole person response. See, praise has been the faith-filled response of Christians to trials throughout the ages. When I first moved back to Louisville from New York, I was... Um, I was a new believer. This is where I've been discipled. And um, I was a new Christian, and, and I was still recovering from a lot, of, a lot of stuff. And I didn't have a good understanding of theology. <laughs> I didn't even know what the word theology meant. <laughs> I just knew that I was desperate for Jesus. And um, I've always loved music. And one of the songs that really spoke to me very powerfully during that time was the hymn, Give me Jesus. It, it's so simple. It, it's so powerful. And there have been a lot of great versions of it. Shane and Shane. Uh, Jeremy Camp has a great version. Um, uh, probably my favorite right now is from Fernando Ortega. And that hymn came back to my mind this week as I was preparing for this message. And, and, and I did a little bit of research. And one of the things about some of our most endure, enduring hymns, some of our most timeless hymns, is that they were forged in the fires of deep suffering and affliction. In the late 1800s, during Reconstruction, one of the most popular forms of entertainment was the black minstrel show. These shows consisted of uh, comic skits, variety acts, dancing and music performances that mocked people, specifically of African descent. The shows were performed by white people in makeup or blackface for the purpose of playing the role of black people. And minstrel shows lampooned black people as dim-witted, lazy, buffoonish, superstitious, and, and lots of other terrible things. And these racist portrayals of blacks prompted the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass to declare the minstrel's distorted characterizations as humiliating and corrupt. In 1871, when most black music was being performed by white minstrel musicians in blackface, a small group of exceptionally well-trained singers at Fisk University in Nashville formed the Jubilee Singers. The group's name celebrated the abolition of slavery as well as Fisk University 
and their post-war attempt to educate emancipated blacks. The Jubilee Singers achieved worldwide renown for their stirring and very professional performance of traditional black spirituals. In early 1872, they were uh, invited to perform uh, for President Grant. And the next year, in 1873, on a tour of Great Britain and Europe, uh, in 1873, the group performed for Queen Victoria in London. Their music um, incorporated ballads of Stephen Foster, as well as slave songs never before performed on stage, such as the famous Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Wade in the Water, and the Gospel Lament, Give Me Jesus. See, the Jubilee singers' perseverance in the face of great opposition has allowed us to celebrate a true American art form to this day, and it's helped thousands of generations for generations take their laments to the God of all comfort. And that's what David is expressing here in Psalm 63. We transcend suffering and trials in the moment by praising God. See, David doesn't stay trapped by focusing on his problem. Instead, he gains confidence by focusing on his God. Because we serve a good God. We serve a faithful God. Psalm 105 says, For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. I did the research. There are 42 results came up for the phrase, His steadfast love endures forever. Now, what I'm about to say next is important, so please hear me. We can't afford to wait to try to figure out whether or not we can trust God in the middle of a crisis. We must settle in our hearts and minds who God is and what His character is like before the trials come. And here's why. There will be many things we don't understand. And we need discernment to persevere through those challenges. And there's two things in particular that we're going to face. First, we're going to fight confusion. We're going to be asking, why is this happening? And second, we're going to be fighting accusation. Satan's going to attack our identity. David could praise God in the midst of great trial and suffering because he knew God. He trusted Him. Psalm 63, verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips my mouth will praise you. It's the goodness of God, the love of God that becomes a feast for David's soul. David here is using the metaphor of a great banquet to declare that his very being, his soul, will have the feeling a satisfaction that you experience at the end of a great meal with the most precious delicacies. One translation says, with fat and rich foods, it's an image of the choicest parts of the best animals. It's like that feeling that you get at the end of Thanksgiving. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Again, David just keeps pouring out praise. It's more praise. It's more praise to God. God, you're good. In verse 6, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. 
one of the things that seems common when people have bouts of insomnia is, is a high level of stress and an inability to turn off uh, their brain. And I don't know about you, but it seems like at 3 a.m., things seem even more dreadful than they are in the daylight hours. And David had a lot to be stressed out about. But notice this. He declares that he chooses to remember God's goodness and faithfulness in the midst of the loneliest, scariest part of the day, in the bitter watches of the night. And that's a great reminder for us as well, that when we're overwhelmed in the middle of the night, we can take control of the situation by declaring the promises and the character of God. That's a very timely word from Molly earlier. David had walked a long time with the Lord, and he draws strength and he draws confidence when he recalls the testimonies of God's faithfulness in his life. And that's true for us as well. Confidence comes when we remember the past, when we understand that God has shown Himself strong, not only in our lives before, but in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's one of the reasons why testimonies are so important. They are ammunition to overcome our fears when anxiety comes. Psalm 63, verse 7 and 8, Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David uses the image of being protected and cared for under the wings of shelter. It's one of several references in the Bible that uses that image of an eagle, of a bird of prey that's defending its children. This passage closes with a beautiful picture of resting under the presence and protection of the living God. And once again, notice David's response. The protection of God leads to the praise of God. This passage closes with a beautiful crescendo of the ideal portrait of our relationship with God. David declares that his soul, his very existence, is clinging to God. And God, at the same time, is upholding us with His right hand. God is faithful to His children. He's faithful. One more story as I close. Worship songs, as we know, has often been a topic of discussion in the church. It seems like every generation there's some type of debate about style or, or content. One article that I read last year calls it the worship wars. <laughs> but there are some songs that are timeless. It seems like they're never going to go out of favor. In a poll of all-time favorite hymns, How Great Thou Art was voted the United Kingdom's favorite hymn uh, by the BBC Songs of Praise and was ranked second only after Amazing Grace on a list of favorite hymns in a poll from Christianity Today. The hymn has a rich history. It's based on a Swedish traditional melody and a poem written by Carl Boberg in 1885, and it was later translated into German. It was translated into Russian. And in the early 20s and 30s, a British missionary couple, Stuart Hine and his wife Edith, were traveling through the Carpathian Mountains. This is near the border of modern-day Ukraine. There they heard this Russian hymn, and they, they learned it, and they started using it in their evangelistic services. Uh, Stuart also started re rewriting and adding new verses as events inspired him. 
one event in particular, when they arrived in a Ukrainian village, they heard a, the, the sound of a wonderful uh, and, and strange sound. Uh, a woman was reading aloud in her home from the Gospel of John about the crucifixion of Jesus to a house full of guests. And the, these visitors at that very moment were in the very act of repenting and giving their lives to Jesus. Uh, they heard the people calling out to God and saying how unbelievable it was that Christ would die for their sins, and they were praising Him for His love and His mercy. And they just didn't want to barge in and disrupt the work of the Holy Spirit, so they just stayed outside and listened. And Stuart wrote down the phrases that the new converts used, and it became the third verse of the song that we know today. And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. Later, at the outbreak of World War II in 1939, the Hines had to return to London. And, uh, but after the war, millions of displaced people from Eastern Europe streamed to London, and they got to continue working uh, with people from Eastern Europe. And they told an amazing story of how one man had been separated from his wife at, at the, during the war, uh, and he'd not seen her since. But when they were separated, she was a believer and he was not. And his deep desire was to, to find his wife so they could uh, worship there and share their faith together. But he didn't think they'd, they'd ever meet again. Instead, he was longing for the day when they would meet in heaven and can share life eternal there. These words became the basis for the fourth and final verse. How Great Thou Art became the best-loved hymn of the Billy Graham Crusades, and it was used by hundreds of times uh, during their meetings, and it became the, the theme of Billy Graham's decision hour, uh, our decision radio broadcast. And this is what Billy Graham had to say about the hymn. He says, the reason I like How Great Thou Art is because it glorifies God. It turns Christians' eyes toward God instead upon themselves. At the beginning of this message, I sought to answer the question, what do you do when you're in a place of wilderness, when you're in a spiritual drought? We pour out our hearts to God and we praise Him. Today, if you're thirsty, if you feel like you're in a dry and weary land, if you feel like that you're far away from God, I want to encourage you because we serve a Savior who understands how you feel. Jesus understands what it's like to be thirsty. Jesus understands what it feels like to be separated from the Father. On the cross, Jesus suffered and thirsted so we could have the water of life. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken so we could be accepted. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our sins. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Right after Jesus died, Scripture says in John 19, 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Jesus' body was bled dry, but he rose again victorious so we could taste the waters of life. Earlier in John 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well, he said this, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Are you parched and desperate for thirst with thirst? Jesus offers spiritual refreshment. Jesus offers to you, to us, the water of eternal life today. And that is worth singing about.